Hello, everyone. Welcome to the B2B Marketing Podcast. My name is David Rowlands, and I'm joined today by Izzy Rivers, who is the CEO and co-founder of marketing agency Realm. So, Izzy, welcome. Um, thanks for joining me. Uh, how are you today? Thanks. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Anytime. So, first things first, before we go into the, the big questions, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey in B2B to date and what kind of drove you to start Realm in the first place? Sure. So... I've been lucky enough to be part of this wonderful B2B industry that we know and love for about 20 odd something years, uh, always in the predominantly in the media space. Uh, I think I've worked on about 200 to 300 B2B clients over that time, which is quite exciting. Um, did a nice little circle actually, started at Dentsu back mm-hmm. in the day, fresh out of university, uh, went through Mindshare and Group M for quite a few years, and then over to DWA, uh, which then got bought by Merkel B2B, which mm-hmm. then got bought by Dentsu and I ended up right back at Dentsu again. So it was a really nice, nice ending. Um, Realm was born, so Realm is a global media planning and buying agency specific for B2B clients. And it was born in 2020, year of the pandemic. And I think with these things, there's always a bit of a push and a pull. So the mm. push was very much there's a lot of change in 2020. We probably all went through it. People spent a lot of time thinking about, oh, what do we really want to achieve? And the pool was this amazing opportunity to build new kind of resourcing models for clients. Mm. So when I was working in the Denso arena for Merkel B2B, I was the global chief strategy officer there. They do wonderful work. And I've got lots of good friends there and massive respect to them. Because they're a large organization, they work across lots of different silos. And for media specifically, you probably know this, that means search teams, social teams, programmatic teams. It's not very centralized. Mm. So I've just felt this real passion to get back to surrounding clients with really good thinking and really good strategy and planning across those, being more agile, adaptable, less siloed and more built for the upper mid market, Mm. Um, rather than necessarily these large B2B organisations that work within silos much more effectively. Yeah. I mean, you may have answered my second question somewhat there anyway, but I just want to understand, what do you think has been the secret to Realm success? Because obviously you are a, a fairly young agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, what, what, what has really been the, the key to success in that time? There's been a few things. I think the first thing was making sure that we were born global. So we didn't open an office in one region and then expand to the others. We opened two US offices and a London office at the same time Mm -hmm. and immediately hired in the regions. So we we built ourselves to be, you know, able to answer for lots of different regionalities straight from the get-go. And I would love to say that it's the work because we do do really good quality work because we think about the business problem first. Mm. But actually, I think it's been more the agility, surprisingly, that's that's pushed that. Um, A lot of clients are moving to more sort of hybrid models at the moment because we are so agile with resourcing and bringing in experts that are needed that's that's enabled us to grow very quickly because we can answer for a lot of different scenarios Mm. so what do you think um you know what are some of the trends that you're actually seeing from your clients because obviously with so many clients your best place to kind of give us a bit of insight on on industry thinking so what, what are you hearing from them what are they demanding more and more of from an agency Oh, gosh, everything. Um, (laughs) I would probably preface this by saying I have a very media first. So it's an activation lens on this. We do lean into marketing thinking, but we don't do sort of content or creative or anything like that. So anything that I I answer in this will be colored by that viewpoint. Mm -hmm. We are seeing a heck of a lot of movement towards this sort of double down on profitable thinking. Mm. 
So whereas in major B2B verticals, particularly things like tech, fintech, finserve, there's been a high growth mentality for sort of the last five to eight years. The last one to two has been a massive double down on profitable growth coming out of COVID into this, the macroeconomic scenario that everybody's talking about. We're seeing a huge shift in demands from clients on things like transparency, metrics, what's working, what isn't, and quicker sprints. Mm. So people aren't planning to the same length that they were before. You'll lay down 12-month activation strategies, but you'll implement those in either one-month or three-month bursts at a maximum. Yeah. Do you think that part about, um, you know, marketers having to kind of prove the value of everything they're, dr- they're doing, mm-hmm. do you think sometimes that's actually a bit of a restriction because they're forced into proving like the success of every small thing they do and it might limit creativity somewhat? I mean, there's different kinds of creativity. So I would say that uh, to me, more restrictions empowers creativity because mm. if you had a completely open brief and you could do anything, then it's very hard to be creative because you could just literally use any idea. So the more kind of edges to your box you're given, Mm. the more you have to think cleverly to outpace the competition and do something a bit more surprising. So I wouldn't say that a double down on profitable targets is doing that. I think there's always been a desire to measure well. I just think that the metrics are changing. So that will change the strategies and that brand to demand balance that comes off the back of it. Yeah, yeah, of course. So in our um, latest agencies benchmarking report, which for um, everyone listens, uh, everyone listening, sorry, ranks uh, the top agencies in the UK and provides some insight into the services they provide and, and some of their thinking. Um, we revealed that the biggest challenge faced by marketers is the ability to attract slash retain uh, quality staff, um, which for me, I find actually quite surprising because, you know, in the, the list of options that we provided, there were things like pressure on clients' budgets, which... I mean, I may have wrongly assumed I, th- I thought that would be number one. Um, you know, clients moving activity in-house, ability to measure campaign effectiveness, as I've just said. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, why do you think it is so hard for agencies to, A, get the right people in the door in the first place, um, and secondly, just sort of keep hold of them once they're in? Oh, so I wasn't surprised by it mm. as much, but then I work in an agency and have oh, done for go. a very long time, yeah. so that's probably probably why. Agencies, by their very nature, hold a lot of different skill sets, is what I would say, because clients tend to use them to answer for things that are either new and up and coming, help mm-hmm. solve big business challenges, resourcing issues, or, you know, lean into expertise, one would hope, you know, because yeah. we're, we're all geniuses. So I don't think um, that it's too much of a surprise that resourcing is the issue in that you need to resource so many skill sets out the gate to actually deliver yeah. the work. And it does very much lean into those cutting edge you know how do you hire someone that's a metaverse expert or you know if you're leaning into the ai metrics everyone's got an opinion about chat gbt and foundational models and that kind of thing but how do you get people in that actually make that relevant to your business and i think in b2b people are still doing that with crm and salesforce integrations back into media implementation for example yeah so hiring is a challenge um and did it did it delineate in that report between hiring particular skill sets and then the mindsets of the younger generations? I don't know. It didn't, but I'd love to talk about that. I mean, I guess the question is, who is hard to actually get in the door? Is it is it a certain level? Is it a certain age group? Perhaps you've got some, some insight there? 
Yes. I Well, I would say the challenges are different depending by age group. Mm. I know there's been a whole load of papers about it. You can't really go online without reading something about those Gen Zs and millennials wanting to... I don't think it's that necessarily. I think it's the double down of... Younger generations have more of an expectation of how they want to live their life. Mm. And this sort of big behemoth machine agency slash publisher world of the of the past i would say then got double down hit by covid and agile working and that whole conversation and they just they're braver i think they take more control and they want to dictate how they work and with that comes challenges with things like training and you know so i would say there's definitely a generational aspect to it as well as a functional aspect to it do you think part of that as well is that for not all of Gen Z, but a lot of Gen Z, they've never actually had that sort of five days in the workplace. So take me, for instance, I'm 28 years old. So the first four and a half years of my career, so to speak, were five days a week in an office. The The concept of doing even one day at home was totally alien and would have been very frowned upon. But you can imagine for, say, like a 22-year-old, their entry into the career, uh, you know, the, the working world, if you like, has been flexible. And so now that that is a real expectation and the idea of having to come in sort of like four or five days a week seems almost absurd. I think that's a really interesting point, actually. And the absurdity of that expectation needs to marry with the ability to hire people that are going to move your business forward. Mm. And I, I think people are still sort of sorting that out. Some of the older generations, dare I say it, and I probably fall into one of those, Um have that mindset you have to be in the office to absorb the knowledge of your peers and gain that training and really succeed they want the hungry go-getters etc and those those people are still the same people are still the same people still want to succeed they're still ambitious Mm. it's literally about shaking down what training looks like and how to identify good people and how to have them collaborate yeah but i think that hiring practices probably struggle with that a little bit in addition to getting people who can actually do the work and have that technical expertise yeah yeah i think it's a fair point Mm. um just a quick note to our listeners say that if you would like to access the b2b marketing uk agency's benchmarking report um we'll leave a link in the description um so you can find out all of the uk's uh, biggest and best agencies in there Um, and any members of propolis listening which is our community intelligence platform for b2b marketers um you can also access our market analysis within the platform too so before uh, be sure to check that out um, but Izzy, recently, um, you know, via via the medium of email, uh, you mentioned that there are five macro sh- strategies uh, currently being deployed by forward-thinking B2B marketing strategies, which, and I'll read these out because I don't want to mess them up. <laughs> these are tethered branding, integrated marketing, edge-to-edge demand, a multi-vendor approach, and maximizing lifetime value. So starting with the first, uh, tethered branding, what do you actually mean by this and why do you think it's so important for marketers? Okay. So we're very lucky at Realm to work with a lot of fantastic brands, and that includes punching above our weight with some very large organisations because we work within people who have in-housed and all that kind of thing. So we have access to quite a lot of these core marketers. Um, In addition to the the companies that we work with, we also looked at an additional 20 CMOs in blue chip B2B companies. So these are brands that you've definitely heard of a million times. And we did in-depth, 25 in-depth interviews to really figure out what were the drivers. So these come from those interviews. This isn't sort of our strategic department sitting in a room for an afternoon and trying trying to decide what the drivers are. Tethered branding was a lot of conversations that we had around developing this brand first mentality from 2020. Mm -hmm. So when COVID hit 
And people were panicking and saying, how do I keep the demand? Events aren't there. That, you know, we, we all remember what it was like. Brand kind of emerged as the hero again, right? Brand and creativity, keep your market share, keep on top of the game. And when the environment sorts itself out and, you know, SaaS subscriptions go back up again and all that kind of thing, then you'll be there and, and you'll be able to convert. Well, that conversation went on between 2020 and, and probably 2022, mid-2022. And that's when the macro economy really began to bite this double down on profitability. Mm-hmm. So then you've got marketers that have been going to their CEOs for two years and saying, you really need to invest in brand. Yeah. <laughs> and they're thinking, well, we can't really go year three because where's the pipeline? We need to sort out this pipeline. So there's a, there's been this sort of shift to focusing on the what brand is doing to the funnel. And while that's not something new, I think reorganizing what the KPIs are and having a really good hard look at what the, a small streamlined tech stack is doing to measure back up that activation and deployment funnel isn't something that people had got 100% correct yet. And they're probably sort of getting around the 70 or 80% mark now. But next, op- optimizing to next best action, not just looking at leads, looking at what that's doing to opportunities and figuring out how to get flat data and live data that you can optimize against working to measure brand. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, these are the macro strategies being deployed by forward thinking B2B Mm -hmm. um, companies. But do you think that your your sense as an agency, do you feel like most organisations are doing this and it's something they need to be sort of pushed towards? I think from the companies that we're working with, probably about 60 to 70 percent are looking Mm. this direction. Because the alternative is to double down on demand and mm. shift right back down to just last click, lead gen, you know. And, and that's a real struggle because that doesn't move the bottom line. And CEOs in the C-suite level are looking at the overall profitability of the company now. They're not looking for fast growth. They're not looking for those investment levels or indicators they've had before. So you can no longer just optimize those top yeah. level. So, so demand is still working. Demand strategies are working, but the measurement of them are limited. And those are really your only two options. Look yeah. at the full funnel and how that impacts the bottom. Double down on lead generation and have a shorter term strategy. Yeah. So that's one fifth of the, uh, the macro strategies we're going to discuss. So the second one was um, integrated marketing. Mm. And I assume um, what you mean by this is that you're talking about ensuring all of your marketing efforts are working in a joined up way and not at odds with each other. But isn't that just, well, A, you know, stop me if I've got that completely wrong. Um, (laughs) But B, isn't that just sort of standard procedure for any marketing operation these days? Yes. You would hope it was standard procedure. (laughs) I would say that this one was a surprise to us as much as perhaps the resourcing and staffing uh, learning was a surprise (laughs) to you earlier. Uh, We weren't thinking that this would come up again, that integration would come up again. But it is, especially for the larger, more matrix organizations. And when I say matrix organizations, that doesn't have to be a large business. A lot of mid-market has grown through M&A in the B2B space. I'd say nearly all of it. Um, So true integration can be complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as having one global marketing department sitting out of San Francisco or, or London, where you just need to make sure those five people from sales to, to brand are speaking. This could be actually we've got 12 brands and 40 products and we're only a European operation. How do we make this work and streamline through to sales? Mm. 
So a friend of mine um, who uh, works at HP, actually, she's the head of brand there, Rachel Fairley. She gave me the best analogy for this. She was saying, if you were a plumber, you'd make pretty sure that all your pipes were in line and you didn't have any leaks before you turned the taps on full. And that's what it is, you know, you, making sure that the plumbing's working. Um, and I, I bet it comes up year after year because companies will continue to expand and move and change and buy each other. Yeah. I mean, you'd hope most plumbers think like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but personal experience tells me perhaps that's not the case. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, so the next strategy uh, you touched upon was edge to edge demand. So um, tell me, what is this all about and, and why should marketers be listening to, about it? This was my favourite learning. Um because it fundamentally changed how we work with some of our clients to deliver pipe. So you'll know that there's lots of different lead generation strategies that you can do out there. You can buy data lists, you can email, content syndication, and those come with different level of qualification. So let's just take content syndication leads as an example, right, of which there are, there are many. You can buy many different content syndication leads. Mm. You can buy BANT, single touch, double touch, people that have been qualified via telesales or not. There's like a suite of different products that these lead gen companies, you know, yeah. produce. And it used to be that BANT used to sell all day long as people were like, yes, great. The reason I think, this is just my opinion, that BANT sold all day long is because it answered a marketing KPI. Mm. So if you say to a marketing department, you have to deliver, I don't know, 50,000 qualified leads, and that's your target. They will do everything they can to deliver qualified leads, but they're also in charge of defining what a qualified lead is and mm -hmm. MQL is. So that might be somebody that's touched two pieces of content. Yeah. So then they'll buy leads that have touched two pieces of content. They all MQL, everybody's happy, met, met lead target. Those days are gone because the double down on profitability and people are interested in opportunities and sales pipeline. Nobody really cares how many MQLs you have anymore. Mm. That and the increase in technology has drastically changed how leads are input into the majority of our client systems. Right. So if you could imagine like sort of a, a, a barbell in your mind, yep. on, on the left hand side is low quality, high volume leads, list buys, single touch, just give me as many leads as you can for the cheapest price properly. Yeah. Pro that's still going very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Then there's like nothing in the middle, no bant, no double touch, mm. very low levels. And then right on the other side of the barbell, you've got give me the most quality leads you have. And I don't really care how much it costs, but as long as they're ready to buy. And that's yeah. linked to people um, getting SDR and BDR outreach um, departments to help with their sales. They might not have enough sales teams or it could be really quality you know, event-led partnerships. And, and that's where it's sort of gone. That's what I mean by edge-to-edge -edge demand. It's just gone to the edges. Um, I could talk about this all day. The reason... Please. <laughs> the, interesting, of course, the reason that the high-volume, cheapest possible, give me lots of contacts is doing well is because of data privacy, because of the increase in technological advancements with CRM, Salesforce, Nurture. Why pay a company to deliver leads that have been touched more than once or twice if you can do it? Mm. If you can hold that data yourself as a client, keep it within your systems, make sure that it's fully privacy, GDPR compliant, that gives you the ability to email them, 
create first party data segments, touch them on LinkedIn, send them in-depth con- content experiences, whatever you want to do. But you own that then. Yeah. So that's why that's still going strong. And the other ones is usually a sales issue. Yeah. Well, issue is a bit of a strong word. <laughs> Lack so, of sales. So why do you think most marketers aren't paying attention to that? What do you think the reasons are? Paying attention to sales? No, not sorry, not sales, but the the, the concept of edge-to-edge demand. Like, why are they perhaps only focusing on one end of the barbell, if you like, or both ends of the barbell, not what's in between? I think it's, I do think it's that point on ownership. Mm. So, especially if you're moving to a profitable approach, your own customers and having a good grip on the first party data of prospective or net new customers is absolutely mandatory to get that competitive edge. Mm-hmm. And contact details is one of the most powerful pieces of information you have when you then start figuring out what those people are doing. As yeah. soon as you've got that email address, you've got the unique identifier, you can get your other pieces of technology, whether that's an ABM piece of technology or something else, to start appending additional information to it. This person has also been to the website, has also consumed this piece of content and came in as a lead. Let's get, and they're in a high value account. Let's get sales to call them. If that's in your own environment, you can understand all that about it, but there's no need to necessarily pay over the odds to get that contact in in the first place if you can qualify that on your own. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting point. So my, um, sorry, not Mike, <laughs> your fourth <laughs> strategy that you've highlighted um, as the sort of one of the macro strategies is a multi vendor approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's tons of great marketing technology out there. We, we everyone has seen the, uh, the Scott Brinker infographic and there's more and more um, with each passing year. But the, the problem I think is mm-hmm. integrating all of that technology. So that actually makes sense to the user because you could have, 40, 50 different platforms all telling you slightly different things. And if they're not joined up and connected, mm-hmm. not only is it hard to make sense of, but it also becomes quite intimidating and maybe a little bit off-putting. Yeah. Um, so what precisely do you mean by multi-vendor approach? What does sort of good look like? Um, mm-hmm. And how can marketers go about doing that in a way that doesn't cause more headaches than good? So from a tech perspective we're actually seeing people lose pieces of technology and stream that multi-vendor mm. approach so if we're looking at multi-product or multi-tech that is becoming more streamlined mm. probably because that knowledge has been promoted to higher levels within the marketing organization so mm-hmm. they've got a more strategic view of how it works together and they're eliminating any legacy tech that's been brought in but i think people are as important if not more important actually than the technology that underpins because if you're not using that correctly then you're not going to get the power of it and the insights from it so i suppose more what we meant from a a multi-vendor approach is a multi-agency multi-partner approach to working with marketing so my background i think touched on it before is i've worked at a lot of large agencies and large and some small so you're thinking your group m's you know etc And they deliver marketing and media at scale brilliantly, like no other. So, I mean, absolutely fabulous at that job. But when it comes to having people who really understand how everything works together, that's where people tend to lean in. So I was at um, a Reuters event for Sim the other day, really, really good one, talking to some uh, lead of HSBC. And she was saying... Hire from within for product, right? So if you really need marketing expertise who really understand what it is that you do, 
Mm-hmm. Hire from within because no one's going to know products like they do. No agency is going to come in and tell you how your business runs uh, better than you know. Mm. But when it comes to expertise, contract that out. When it comes to like specialisms, yeah, special skill sets, because by the time you've hired them into your organisation, that skill set would have changed <laughs> or evolved. And that's really the role of an agency, I think. It's to be on that cutting edge, ever-changing, knowing what's going on, why it's a struggle hiring. Yeah. So when it comes to multi-vendor, if people and a lot of marketers are doing this because that's where this point's come from, you're promoting from within into the marketing team, from your product teams, from your sales teams. That's great. But when it comes to things like smart execution, really creative branding, you might hire a really good brand agency. You might hire somebody who really understands social content. Mm -hmm. You might hire a really, really good uh, B2B specific media agency, right? (laughs) Uh, to round out your capabilities. And in the old days, when I was old days, working at um, larger organizations, they tend to do that end to end. So the densities of the world or the group ends will be that one stop shop. Come and contract with us, probably because you've got a large budget and we'll do everything for you. Clients don't want that anymore. They don't want all their creative media content and everything under one roof. They want the specialist to do, to sort of complement what they're doing. Yeah. And we see that with our working models. I don't think there's one client that we work with in the same way. So we do a lot of work with clients who have in-house their media. You think that would be crazy. Like clients that have in-house their media are working with us as a media agency. Yeah. Because you try and leave the ego at the door and be really sensible and logical about what's required and fill in those gaps and sort of act as a glue for all the things the clients do themselves and bring them all together. So that is the multi-vendor approach, is this hire from within contract expertise. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, you know, bringing it all the way full circle back to that issue around finding the right people, it's kind of solves that as well. That's it. Right, so you're at the fifth and final macro strategy that you touched upon was maximising lifetime value, which I don't think anyone's going to argue is, is, a, is a great <laughs> idea. Yeah. Um, but my question is, how can marketers figure out how to do that in the first place? So what questions do they actually need to be able to answer before they can realistically actually improve their lifetime value? Well, there's all the obvious things that have been talked about a million times before, I guess. So re-engage your current clients. Don't leave them out of your marketing strategies, especially in today's environment, right? I mean, if you keep all your clients in the next two years, you've won, honestly. I mean, growth is great, but let's just start with not losing anybody. That's the, the main thing. So, yes, they're a core part of strategies overall. But I think where the exciting stuff's happening, where it's evolving a bit more, is, again, clever use of data. Mm. So really analysing what your renewal patterns are, looking at who is more likely or what what kind of company is more likely to be a high consumer, where can you upsell, cross-sell. Segmentation is really key there. So marketers maximizing lifetime value i think is about increasing that communication with them in a way that just keeps them in love with your brand in an environment where they're not really in love with any brands because those companies too are dealing with profitability not high growth Mm. so they'll cut out anything that isn't working it's difficult though isn't it because you say kind of increase that relationship with them and, and keep offering value but there's so much noise going on online these days and let's face it that's where most of these communications are happening there's you know print magazines aren't quite as popular as they used to be (laughs) 
do you find that that's a challenge is actually how do you strike the balance between providing value and being interesting but at the same time not getting a little bit boring and like annoying frankly (laughs) (laughs) I mean it's interesting isn't it and all of these points are such large topic areas and we're covering them quite quickly so that that makes it difficult to talk about the specifics with lifetime value in particular and the noise that you're saying that's that's going around a lot I mean the old adage is if somebody is your customer they don't want to hear you from you like unless something goes wrong they don't want to they just want the tech to work they want everything to be as seamless as possible your main touch point is customer service and usually somebody's got an issue at that point so they're not too happy mm-hmm. but I think that's the point when it comes to loyalty programs and driving loyalty there is a lot of good work that goes out there from an in- and it's about getting the right incentives um, and it's about looking ahead to where your business is moving mm. so if you look at the products that have got the most liquidity or something if you say you're in financial services or if you look at the products which have the most inflation resilience for example mm-hmm. that's good for now but how does that protect for the future I used to I worked on Oracle for quite a long time and they went and not uh, unlike a lot of other technology clients were moving a lot of legacy customers to the cloud mm-hmm. as a lot of them do and that's something that is a is a bit of a struggle if you don't get to that early enough like what is coming out next year what do you need to move them to how do you need to protect your tech protect your platform how do you roll out updates and do you include everyone on those do you have preferred beta lists all these things make a difference because if you're Let's say you're, you are a technology provider, for example. Your job is to empower your customer to have their business work and run as best as possible, and that includes future-proofing and future, future roadmapping. And usually those things get saved for net new. Like A bit like um, renewals are like more expensive than net new customers' first-time prices, right, yeah. when, you're, when you're buying things. It's interesting because I, I completely agree with everything you've said. Um, but you're, you're right. I mean, renewals, it's, it's, it's not as, I don't know, it's, it's just not as attractive. Is it just, why doesn't it get the same attention? Do you think it's just that kind of demand from the board to see we need new business coming in all the time? Is, is that what it is, do you think? Well, I think you've touched on the fundamental shift mm. that we're seeing. And again, not in all companies, but that's that high growth mentality that we've been in for five to eight years. Mm. That has been just give me net new uh, for demand generation programs. Just fill the pipeline with net new leads as much as possible. Don't give me anything that sales already have. Who cares if they touch something twice? Just get me somebody new. And with and, and with current customers, that's the same. B2B is very different, of course, to consumer, where these loyalty programs are a lot more robust because if you're looking at something like O2, for example, on the consumer side, your O2 priority and all these different things and tidbits you can get, they are useful on the B2B side as well. It's just that the value exchange looks different. Yeah. Mm. Well, Izzy, thank you very much. Um, for talking us through all of that. I think we'll leave it there today. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. So thank you. Thanks very much.